Welcome back to The Reeducation. Again, sorry for the delay in the release of some of these episodes, but we have been hard at work here at The Reeducation, and we've got some really great episodes coming, including the one you're about to listen to right now. This is part one of a very deep dive into the life and legend of Bobby Kennedy through the lens of his enemies. It's the dark side of a martyr, the story of a cop who loved to win, even if it meant playing dirty. My guest is Tevi Troy, the re-education's presidential historian and the creator of 1600 Lessons. You really think they're gonna vote for the white guy? Black folk been voting white for a long time. You come correct, we listen. It's y'all that don't never vote black. Shit, you got my vote anyway. Uh. I don't have your vote, Norman. <laughs> You're my deputy campaign manager and I don't have your vote? Last white man I could vote for was Bobby Kennedy. And you ain't no Bobby K. All right, well, that was Tommy Carchetti, the fictional Baltimore pole who during his mayoral campaign, is in conversation with his black deputy campaign manager and a former Sun Papers editor named Norman Wilson, and also his driver, who also happens to be black. Now, I know it's the second app in a row that I am leading with a clip from The Wire. What can I say? It's just a great show. But I play this because it tells us something about the RFK legacy. You know, white liberals like Tommy Carchetti come and go, but Bobby Kay was the one who really meant it. So the, the Wire, of course, is fiction, but like great works of literature and theater, and that's certainly The Wire is, in my view, qualifies as that, it really is capturing a larger truth. And the larger truth here is that Bobby Kennedy, particularly in the last campaign of his life, really was the most authentic politician of his generation. And his evolution on civil rights made him a hero in the black community and a hero for progressives. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this. And it's a complicated question, and we're going to get into all of this in the episode. But the big moment came in the aftermath of Martin Luther King's assassination. Bobby was in Indianapolis, and he was warned by the mayor of that city at the time, a man who would go on to become a Republican senator, Richard Luger, that he should cancel an appearance he had scheduled for a black neighborhood in the city. All over the country, mayors were bracing for riots in the aftermath of the King assassination. But Bobby ignored Richard Luger. He also threw out his prepared remarks, and then standing on a flatbed truck, he addressed his supporters, most of whom did not know that King had been assassinated. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. All right. So those remarks were off the top of his head. He really just spoke from the heart. And I should say that Indianapolis was one of only two cities in America that evening, Boston being the other because of a similarly heroic oratory and performance from James Brown that did not descend into chaotic riots after the assassination. Okay, I want to play a brief clip now from a talk by Bobby Kennedy biographer Larry Tai, and here he is explaining the significance of Bobby's brief remarks in Indianapolis. From that moment on, through the rest of his campaign, through June of 1968, Bobby Kennedy was easily the single most popular white man in black America. 
but you don't have to trust me. Everywhere he campaigned in a ghetto that year, there was a sign that greeted him, and that sign said, white, but all right. Well, Bobby is not just all right in the black community. Today, RFK is loved by just about everyone. The facts of Robert Kennedy's public career stand alone. He roused the comfortable, he exposed the corrupt, remembered the forgotten, inspired his countrymen, and renewed and enriched the American conscience. So that was President Reagan in 1981, giving Bobby's widow Ethel a medal named in the late senator's honor. George W. Bush's attorney general, John Ashcroft, dedicated the main building of the Justice Department to RFK after an act of Congress instructed him to do so. But in his remarks then, Ashcroft talked about how Bobby Kennedy was kind of a model for the war on terror and how he went after the mafia. Barack Obama's attorney general, Eric Holder, has said that Bobby Kennedy is one of his role models. Here's a brief clip there. Robert F. Kennedy, he is my idol because he used his position as attorney general to make this country better, to make this country more perfect. All over the country, boulevards, avenues are named for Bobby Kennedy. An entire network of schools in Los Angeles are known as the Robert F. Kennedy schools. And yet, Bobby Kennedy was despised by some of America's most powerful people in his lifetime. And I should tell you that the feeling was mutual. Bobby Kennedy was a man driven by his grudges and he was defined by his crusades. As his father, Joe Kennedy, once said about his son, when Bobby hates you, you stay hated. Well, Bobby met the three great villains of his life. I mean, we could argue whether there are four or three, but I'm going to go with three. Between the years 1953 and 1957, when he was a very young man. And these enemies were Lyndon Baines Johnson, Roy Cohn, and Jimmy Hoffa. Bobby Kennedy loathed them. And these enmities have shaped a sliver of his legacy. The recent Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman, for example, depicts the legendary feud between Hoffa and RFK. Robert Cara's magnificent biographical series on Lyndon Johnson brings his longstanding fight with Lyndon Johnson to life. But for the most part, Bobby Kennedy's vengeance and feuds have been airbrushed out of his legacy. The showboater, the hardballer, the wiretapper. Well, it's given way to the salon, the dreamer, and the martyr. We remember Bobby Kennedy as the eloquent champion of migrant farm workers, not the man who tried to destroy the Teamsters. We remember Bobby Kennedy as the senator who had the courage to change his mind on Vietnam, not as the attorney general who approved a dirty war against Fidel Castro. We remember Bobby Kennedy as a fighter for the little guy, not the man who would marshal the power of the federal government to pursue his personal vendettas. Well... Bobby Kennedy was all of those things. He was a complicated man who contained multitudes. But I think that in his soul and in his bones, Bobby K was a cop. The young staff counsel on the Senate's McClellan Committee, Bobby delighted in going on ride-alongs with New York City police officers. This is reminiscent of a young Teddy Roosevelt when he was the New York City police commissioner. He, too, would like to accompany his officers on various raids and things like that. And now I want to kind of share a story from Jack Goldsmith's great book, In Hoffa Shadow, from this period. It's 1957, and we will cover this a little bit more in a bit, but right as the McClellan hearings are beginning, Kennedy actually thinks he's nailed Hoffa. And when Hoffa is arrested in Washington, D.C., Bobby is so excited that he rouses his wife, Ethel, to come to the D.C. courthouse at 2 a.m. 
just to witness Hoffa's arraignment. So it's a certain type of person that delights in watching one's adversary get fingerprinted and perp-walked. But that's who Bobby was. He was a pious crusader. And now I want to sort of, just to, to, to bring this out, I want to now play a brief snippet of the a really impressive documentary called Bobby for President. It's from Netflix from 2018. And this is Neil Gallagher. He was a Kennedy family friend and a former Democratic congressman from New Jersey who served with Jack. And here is what he has to say. Jack Kennedy jokingly said, you know, Neil, I love Bobby. He's my brother and a great guy. He said, but he's a cop at heart. And at the end of the day, if he didn't have somebody to arrest, I think he'd arrest Rose. So that's pretty remarkable. Even his beloved brother, Jack Kennedy, says that Bobby is a cop and that if he didn't have anyone to arrest, he would arrest his own mother. Anyway, unlike, I would say, Jack Kennedy and a lot of other kind of Kennedy, part of the Kennedy clan, Bobby Kennedy really wasn't much for carousing. When JFK wanted to relax, he would often party with his youngest brother, Teddy, or some of his old friends from the Senate House. Bobby, on the other hand, he did have famous parties, which we'll get into in part two at his estate called Hickory Hill. But they were, you know, more staid. They were, they were often intellectual. And I'd say that Bobby Kennedy is a bit of a square. He was the first of his brothers to get married. Even though he was the second youngest, he loved to go to church as a child, and he would make his children, eventually he had 11 of them, say prayers before bedtime and dinner. That's, that's really who Bobby Kennedy was. Anyway, Joe Kennedy, who is the family patriarch, of course, had, had a challenge for all of his children. They would receive $1,000 if they didn't drink any alcohol before they were 21. Bobby is the only one of his brothers to collect on that. There's also a famous story from Kennedy lore where everybody is in Hyannisport, which is the, the big Kennedy compound, and Jack is there with some of his college friends from Harvard, and they steal some liquor from their father's stash. And it's Bobby Kennedy who rats them out because he's a cop. Okay, at first, Joe Kennedy really didn't pay much attention to his third son. He's a slight, like, five foot nine. Joe considered Bobby a little bit to be the runt of his brood's prodigious litter. And Bobby was also not a good student. He bounced around from prep school to prep school. And, you know, while he ended up going to Harvard for his undergraduate education, as all the Kennedy men did, he didn't have the grades to get into Harvard Law School. So he went to the University of Virginia instead. Not to say that the UVA is a bad law school, but it's, you know, it's not Harvard. And he ended up graduating in the middle of his class. So over time, though, RFK really willed himself to greatness. And let me give a couple examples of this. At Harvard, he was the only Kennedy man to earn a vaunted varsity letter in football. And it's not so much for his talent, but it was because he broke his leg in a game and continued to play on that broken leg until he really literally couldn't walk. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, Bobby enlists in the Marines and he doesn't go right away. He finishes Harvard first. But, you know, volunteering for the Marines is impressive. That's, you know, sort of a more elite service than the Army or the Navy or the Air Force. As attorney general, Bobby took up a challenge to walk 50 miles in 20 hours. This was something that apparently Teddy Roosevelt had said every Marine should be able to walk 50 miles in 20 hours. So this became a thing at the time. And he asked four other aides to join him in this grueling hike in 20 degree weather with like ice and snow. And none of the other aides were younger than him at the time. I and mean, he was still a young man. He was like 35. None of the other aides completed this challenge. But Bobby did. And I should say he did it while he was wearing his penny loafers. So I think that's pretty impressive. And it's a testament to, you know, just the power of his will. So it was this steely grit that eventually earned him the affection and trust of his notoriously ruthless father. 
By the time Bobby had graduated from UVA and was prepared to make his name in the world, he was used to being underestimated and ready to outwork anyone who made the mistake of crossing him. Okay, the year now is 1951, and Bobby's first job is at the Justice Department. He's a young attorney. He's working on national security cases. He spends a little bit of time in the Southern District of New York. His career is moving along. And then in 1952, one of Jack Kennedy's top aides, a guy named Kenny O'Donnell, drafts him to manage Jack's 1952 Senate campaign. This was at first to create a buffer between the campaign staff and Joe, the patriarch. Now, Joe was an impossible micromanager, and he scared off Jack's first choice to manage his campaign, as well as other, like, professional polls and stuff. So in this Senate campaign, Bobby, you know, kind of first proves himself to Joe. He proves his aptitude for politics and his value to his father. And Bobby creates these statewide organizations like Italians for Kennedy, Dennis for Kennedy, etc. And it worked. It brings in more volunteers. He, he comes up with the idea of having these teas for Kennedy where Rose and the daughters would host other women. Anyway, it's a pretty impressive win because the opponent, Boston Brahmin Henry Cobbett Lodge, was heavily favored. And it's a year when Dwight Eisenhower, who was incredibly popular, was courted by both parties, was you know at the top of the Republican ticket. So it's impressive in a lot of ways that a young upstart, John Kennedy, would defeat the incumbent, Henry Cabot Lodge. But there's another important thing here that happens as well, and that Joe Kennedy persuades Senator Joe McCarthy, who was an ally and also a friend of the Kennedy family, and also a pretty popular Republican at the time. It's 1952. We're in the middle of what's called the Second Red Scare, and Joe McCarthy is the leading Red Hunter. But he persuades him to stay out of the Massachusetts race and not to campaign for Lodge, which turned out to be a master stroke. And many people don't know this, but the infamous red hunting senator really was a family friend of the Kennedys. I learned this from Larry Ty's great biography. He dated for a little bit Patricia and Eunice Kennedy for a brief sense when they were in Washington. Anyway, this McCarthy connection would also play a role in Bobby's next move. After Jack wins the election, Bobby goes to work for Senator McCarthy's infamous subcommittee on investigation. And it's here on the subcommittee that Bobby meets two of his great rivals. The first is another staff attorney at the time for McCarthy, and his name is Roy Cohn. So Roy Cohn is the prosecutor who got Julius and Ethel Rosenberg the death penalty for being Soviet agents. For decades, the left never accepted this verdict. Read friend of the show and historian Ron Radish, who I want to get on as a guest at some point on this, but his scholarship has proved that the Rosenbergs really were guilty. So that's the first thing that Cohn was known for. And of course, the second thing is that he became a kind of celebrity working for McCarthy, you know, using the senator's various bag of dirty tricks, such as guilt by association, questioning witnesses who invoke the Fifth Amendment, and generally, like his boss, using the process of a committee hearing to be its own kind of reputational penalty. These are tactics that Bobby, by the way, would emulate in a few years. Now, later in life, Cohn would become the defense counsel for some of New York's most notorious characters, including Donald Trump and his father. He represented the Trumps when the Justice Department accused them of violating civil rights law with some of the low-income housing that they owned. Journalist Michael Schmidt from the New York Times, in his book on Trump, quotes, you know, Trump when he's president as saying, complaining kind of about his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, saying, where's my Roy Cohn? So it's now 1953, and McCarthy hires Bobby. Bobby would tell his friends who questioned his allegiances at the time, because, I mean, even then, there were a lot of liberals who were anti-communist 
but they disliked McCarthy for his tactics. And also, I should say, great Irving Kristol wrote along these lines as well. And if you think about it, demagoguing on the threat of domestic communism, which was actually always overstated by McCarthy, is a way of, I guess you could say, avoiding talking about harder questions, which is like what to do in terms of foreign policy about the real advance of the Soviet bloc. Bobby largely defended McCarthy. He liked him. And he would tell, you know, his colleagues, you know, people who questioned him at the time. This is, again, early 50s. It, it, it gets worse for McCarthy in a couple of years. But for now, he sort of said, listen, he, you may not like his tactics, but he's correct on the most important thing, which is the communist infiltration of the U.S. government. All right. Bobby, at the time, was only assistant to the general counsel on the committee. Cohn was the chief counsel, which made sense since Roy Cohn had more experience as a lawyer and was also just a better lawyer than Bobby. Nonetheless, this annoyed Bobby Kennedy, and Cohn understood Bobby also to be his enemy. And in addition to all of this, Cohn, you know, made more, not like Bobby should care about money because he had all the money in the world, but Cohn had a much higher salary than Bobby as well. So here's a revealing quip from the journalist Mary Martyr, and it's quoted in Larry Ty's biography, but I think this kind of sums things up. Roy, this is again, the journalist Mary Martyr, quote, Roy treats Kennedy as a gopher, literally as a gopher, not as a lawyer, not as a fellow counselor or anything like that, as a kid, a rich bitch kid, end of quote. Bobby never forgot or forgave Cone. Many years later, when Cone and RFK are by chance seated in the same section of a popular Manhattan restaurant, Cone turned to Bobby and said, which one of us is going to ask the waiter to move? Bobby ended up moving. Except for a brief period of 15 months, I've been in Washington ever since. 12 years in the House, 12 years in the Senate, five years there as a secretary. Okay, so that was Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1960 being interviewed by Walter Cronkite, summarizing his career in Washington from staffer to congressman to senator. At the time, he was on the ticket with Bobby's brother, Jack. In a few months, Johnson would be the vice president after that interview. All right, so it's a little weird that Lyndon Johnson, given the fact that he was Jack Kennedy's vice president, would end up being one of Bobby's great enemies. But he definitely was. And we'll get into some of that jockeying in the 1960 election in a little bit. But the feud will begin when Bobby is on that McCarthy committee. So I'm going to set this up. At the time, Johnson's a very powerful senator. He's the minority leader in the Senate. He was about to become the Senate majority leader. A lot of people would argue that Lyndon Johnson was the most powerful Senate majority leader in the 20th century or maybe ever. So he's a really big deal. And at the time, Bobby Kennedy comes from a big deal family, but he's just a staffer. All right. So now I'm going to read from Robert Kara's most recent volume of his biography of Johnson called The Passage of Power. And this is the scene. It's early in the morning in January 1953. And Bobby, who just joined the staff, is having breakfast with McCarthy and the other staffers in the Senate cafeteria. And Lyndon Johnson walks up with one of his aides, Horace Busby. And let me let Caro take it from here. Quote, McCarthy, as was his custom, jumped up to shake Johnson's hand, calling him, as senators were already starting to do, leader. And McCarthy's staffers also rose, except quite conspicuously for Bobby, who sat unmoving with a look on his face that Busby described as, quote, sort of a glower, end of quote. Lyndon Johnson knew how to handle that situation. Moving around the table, he extended his hand to take McCarthy's and those of the standing staffers. And when he got to Bobby Kennedy, he stood there with his hand not exactly extended, but in Busby's word, sort of half raised, looking down at Kennedy. For a long moment, Kennedy didn't move. The glower had deepened into something more. Quote, Bobby could really look hating, Busby says. And that was how he looked then. He didn't want to get up, but Johnson was kind of forcing him to. And finally... Without looking, Johnson in the eye, 
Bobby stood up and shook his hand. End quote. Hmm. So what's that all about? Well, this all goes back to Joe Kennedy's relationship with Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, but it's worth it because I think it really does give you the context of Bobby Kennedy's feud and the origins of that feud with LBJ. All right. So Caro would describe in earlier volumes of his biographical series on Lyndon Johnson that he was a professional son. And that means that as a younger politician in particular, Lyndon Johnson had a knack for ingratiating himself with powerful men who didn't have children. Now, uh, he did this with the Georgia Senator Dick Russell when he got to the Senate. But the most important relationship he, he formed this way was with Sam Rayburn, who was the legendary Speaker of the House. So as a young man, as like a like a freshman congressman, Lyndon Johnson was actually invited to what was known as the Board of Education as a weekly meeting in Rayburn's office where Johnson had this front row seat to the power politics in the Roosevelt era. It really fast tracked him in terms of the Democratic Party. Over time, Johnson would be brought into Roosevelt's inner circle as well. Now, all of this is important because Joe Kennedy was originally allies with Franklin Roosevelt, but they ended up having this fallout over World War II. You know, FDR initially made Joe Kennedy the first commissioner of the Security Exchange Commission. So, you know, because Joe Kennedy, people say that Joe Kennedy like made his money as a bootlegger. That's not exactly right. It's a little bit more complicated. I'm probably not going to get into that. But he really made his first fortune by savvily speculating in the stock market and getting out of the stock market before the big crash in, I think, 29. So Roosevelt wanted to aid the British, as we all know, through something called Lend-Lease, he really wanted to get the United States into the war against Hitler. But Joe Kennedy clearly did not. Some of this is Joe Kennedy. It's, he was not a raving anti-Semite, but he definitely he disliked Jews. And you can see that in some of his personal letters. But mainly, Joe Kennedy, just like so many Americans of this era, World War I was so terrible that he just like there's nothing that Joe Kennedy could imagine would be worth going to war in Europe again for even with someone like Hitler. All right. So Joe Kennedy, you know, he's back from at this point, he is FDR's ambassador in the court of St. James in London. And on one of his trips back to Boston, he has a conversation with a Boston reporter and he says he didn't expect that the U.S. would be entering the war in Europe and basically saying it would be a bad idea. Well, this was the excuse that Roosevelt needed to basically give his ambassador the axe. OK, but Joe didn't know this at the time. So FDR played it very cool. He, he calls him up and invites him to the White House and doesn't let him know that he, his job's in jeopardy. And at the time, when FDR is on the phone with Joe Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson and a few other people are kind of in the room, you know, just they get to be on the inner circle of the president. And when Roosevelt hangs up, he says, I'm going to fire the son of a bitch, end of quote. Now, if that was all there was, I really doubt Bobby Kennedy would bother to hate Lyndon Johnson the way that he did. But the problem here is that Lyndon Johnson loved to tell this story time and again. And one can understand why, because first of all, the story shows, oh, well, you know, I'm a very important guy. I'm hanging out with Franklin Roosevelt. And the other thing is, is it's like, you know, it's Johnson is a good storyteller. And he would do this, by the way, he would like tell the story, he would do everyone's accent. So he would, you know, give you the Bostonian brogue for Joe Kennedy and then the nasally like, you know, New York FDR accent, aristocrat accent. Time Magazine's Hugh Sidey wrote... For decades, evenings in the Capitol were enriched with stories like the one about Franklin Roosevelt coaxing Ambassador Kennedy and then with great relish firing him, end of quote. Now, Bobby, of course, knew that Lyndon Johnson kept on telling this story and retelling this story. And it's a story basically about his father's humiliation. And like, if anything, I think it should be clear by now, Bobby Kennedy is a very, very loyal guy and family comes first. 
So let's just say that, like Roy Cohn, Lyndon Johnson stayed hated. Okay. Now, Bobby lasted on McCarthy's committee for a total of seven months. And I think you could say he did some pretty important work. He opened a fruitful investigation into how allies like Norway were trading with communist China. But Bobby was a man on the make, and he understood that as long as Roy Cohn was the chief counsel, he he really wasn't going to rise in that committee. So eventually he got off of the committee, and he still wanted to hunt commies, but he did so for the Democrats. So he became like the chief counsel for the Democrats on that committee, which would make him more kind of on an equal footing with Roy Cohn. And I should say, almost to the end, he remained loyal to Joe McCarthy. He would usually blame Roy Cohn for the excesses of McCarthy. And we know this because in 1958, even though his brother Jack, who was by this point a a senator and was definitely running for president, he tells Bobby not to attend McCarthy's funeral in Appleton, Wisconsin, but Bobby goes anyway out of respect for the man. All right. So Bobby's move to work for the Democrats on the same committee was great timing because it meant that he would not be associated with McCarthy's great stumble and descent and fall, which was 1954 is the year that McCarthy begins these hearings on what he considers to be the communist infiltration of the U.S. Army. It was nuts. There was nothing to it, really. And it really was the beginning of the end for old Taylor Glunner Joe, because by going after the army that way, he managed to make an enemy of the leader of the Republican Party at the time and the president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And also he persuaded Jagger Hoover that it really wasn't worth the candle to keep supporting him. So Jagger Hoover turns on him as well. All right. Now, at this moment, Bobby Kennedy, the hardballer, has an opportunity to twist the knife on his enemy, which is Roy Cohn. So this is just a minor thing. But in another hearing, sort of all related, McCarthy, this is like, again, beginning of the end for McCarthy. Another hearing, Roy Cohn calls as a witness Annie Lee Moss, who he accuses of being like a member of the Communist Party and blah, 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 blah. But it turns out this was mistaken identity. So here's an innocent person being accused by Cohn of being a member of the Communist Party. And Bobby allowed for this totally innocent person who just happened to have like a similar name to come to the committee. And then Bobby, you know, again, plunges the knife into the rib cage, giving the correct questions to Democrats on the committee as a way to humiliate Cohn for his sloppy legal research. Cohn, too, stayed hated. <laughs> All right. It's 1957. Bobby Kennedy still on the make, and he's moved up again. This time, he is now the chief counsel for the McClellan Committee, named for Senator McClellan in the Senate. And it's their job was to investigate what the press at the time called the rackets, organized crime and its infiltration of the unions. Bobby becomes a television celebrity in this period because these are a hot ticket. These are contentious hearings. A few years earlier, Eustis Gafaver would have hearings about the mafia for the first time. People were interested but it's the McClellan Committee that really gets everyone's attention. And the prize fight in these hearings, well, it's RFK versus Jimmy Hoffa. And this is the beginning of their epic feud. One of the most, it's like this feud, Jimmy Hoffa versus Bobby Kennedy. It's like Aaron Burr versus Alexander Hamilton. It's one of the great American feuds. The Ivy Leaguer versus the Union Man. Capital versus labor. All right. So initially, they actually had what was supposed to be a get-to-know-you dinner before the McClellan committee hearings began. A mutual friend of Hoffa's and Kennedy's, lobbyist by the name of Eddie Chaffetz, 
invited them to this off-the-record dinner at his home before the McClellan committee hearings could get underway. And this is a very common thing in Washington, which is like, you know, everybody sort of knows each other. It's a company town. And there are usually these efforts to say, hey, listen, why don't we just let's have dinner together and sort of see maybe we're not all that different. Do we have to go on, you know, that kind of thing? Well, it was meant as this opportunity for detente, but uh, it totally wasn't. All right. Now, the accounts here differ a lot. So it's hard to know exactly what what is, let's say, hyperbole and what is real. But according to RFK in his memoir of this period, Hoffa spent the entire time telling these stories about how tough he was and how people crossed him. He, you know, would they shouldn't get in his way. And, and Bobby concludes that a grown man who talks like this about all the time about his toughness was just a frightened bully. And he became just more convinced that Hoffa was just a terrible person. Now, Hoffa in his second memoir, tells an incredible story. Again, this is, it's Hoffa's word, but I just, it's too good not to share. So he remembers in this meeting at one point, Bobby Kennedy challenging him to something known as Indian wrestling. I don't know if you've ever done this. I, it's something I remember from summer camp. You basically like try to like pin someone's like arm behind their back. So I want to quote here from Hoffa's second memoir. Quote, I couldn't believe he was serious, but he stood up, loosened his necktie, took off his jacket and rolled up his sleeves. It's like taking candy from a baby. I flipped his arm over and cracked his knuckles on the top of the table. It was strictly no contest and he knew it, but he had to try again. Same results. He just got up, his face red as fire, rolled down his sleeve, put on his jacket and walked out of the room. He didn't even stay for dinner. I'm damn certain in my heart that Robert F. Kennedy became my mortal enemy that night. I think there's some problems with that because other accounts say that they did have roast beef with the Chafis household, but again... It's a great story. And, you know, Hoffa's a colorful character. I just thought that was very funny. And I could also see it happening because Bobby Kennedy, like, would love to enter, like, push-up contest. He was just very into this kind of thing, like that story about him walking 50, like, 50 miles in 20 hours, that kind of thing. Anyway, all right. So after that disastrous dinner, the hearings in earnest begin. Did you discuss this matter with Johnny Diaguardi? During some conversation the form, I may have, but I cannot recollect, and I'm sure that the charters were issued out of the international office by the representatives handling the chartering of it, and I don't recall whether or not it was discussed in any conversation, lightly or otherwise. I don't recall. Okay, Bobby in that clip is asking about Johnny Duaguarda or Johnny Dio. All right, Hoffa made a deal with him to establish through the Teamsters a set of phony unions, or what were called at the time paper unions in New York. Dio was a classic example of what's known as a labor racketeer. He made his fortune by manipulating the garment industry in Lower East Side Manhattan, chiseling tribute from the manufacturers, the unions, and the trucks that brought the goods and material to and from the factories. Dio's deal with the Teamsters was a corrupt way for this gangster to cloak his extortion schemes in legitimate-looking union work, and for Hoffa, it was an opportunity to build support in the northeast of the country for his own run to be Teamsters president. Okay, it's worth noticing that in that clip, Hoffa himself does not take the Fifth Amendment, as almost all of the McClellan witnesses did. And when they did, it would Bobby Kennedy would tease them, much in the same way that McCarthy would, and suggest that they were guilty. By the way, you have a right to take the Fifth Amendment, not to incriminate yourself, and that does not mean you are guilty. The whole damn point of the Fifth Amendment, and I can't stand it today when people say that people who take the Fifth Amendment, whether it's Republican or Democrat, they must be guilty. All right. Okay. What Hoffa did, though, it infuriated Bobby 
because he just danced around the allegations. And I can say in this, you know, you see the exchanges. It's all on YouTube. You can see it. But they just glare at each other the whole time. And then occasionally Hoffa would break up the glare with a wink. And I'm sure that infuriated Bobby Kennedy even more. All right. But even though Bobby would play what were surreptitiously recorded conversations, you had the tape between Hoffa and Dio. Hoffa just kind of said, oh, I don't remember in my own recollection and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So this is the, I want to say, you could say that Jimmy Hoffa sort of is a pioneer of a tactic for people on the wrong side of an aggressive congressional hearings. The I don't remember, I don't recall approach to that. Well, I guess it starts with James Riddle Hoffa in 1957. All right. These two egomaniacs just despised each other. I know I said it's like one of the, I just want to play, I'd give a little bit of context to how much they hated each other. Hoffa famously instructed the Teamsters to stop flying the American flag at their DC headquarters at half staff when John F. Kennedy was murdered in 1963. Here's Hoffa in 1973 explaining that decision to Dick Cavett. There is a story though that is unpleasant that you uh, refused to have the flag lowered to half-mast when John F. Kennedy was killed. That's and correct. he hated all the Kennedys. No, that isn't correct. I didn't feel that he deserved, but I had witness of him both as a senator and as a president, that we should lower the flag of our building for a man that I did not have a respect for. The office I have a respect for, him I had no respect for. And I did instruct them not to send our people home and not to lower the flag. And I would do it again tomorrow if it had to happen. All right. As a matter of level setting, it's important to say up front here, there was a good reason why the McClellan Committee took notice of Jimmy Hoffa. He did have lots of relationships with organized crime figures. It's true. This was not that extraordinary in the 1950s. And if that's all there was, that you just had these associations, it would be sort of like sleazy, but not sexy, because it happened a lot in the 20th century. The problem was that in 1956, the year before the McClellan Committee gets going, Johnny Dio went way too far. And I need to set this up. It's an important like story that kind of gives you why was the country suddenly just like, why was the Senate like pants on fire, hair on fire about the mafia in 1957? And this has got a lot to do with it. All right. So 1956, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, he'd already begun investigating. There was already a grand jury looking into organized crime in New York and their relationship with the unions. Okay. And one of the witnesses for this was a syndicated labor columnist who also had a radio show. It was a big deal at the time, a guy by the name of Victor Riesel, who announced on his program and in his column that he was, you know, honored to be testifying to this grand jury and in this investigation that he would be bringing down what he called the Mr. Biggs of the crime syndicate. Well, you can probably guess what the New York mob thought of that. And here I want to quote from a, the book Vendetta by James Neff, which is... An, Probably the best account of the Kennedy-Hoffa feud. Anyway, I want to quote it here. Quote, It was easy to spot Rissell, five foot four, wearing a fedora, and his young secretary, tall with shoulder-length blonde hair. After dinner, they walked to her car, parked on the corner of 51st and Broadway. There, a thin, dark-haired young man stepped out of the shadows near the Mark Hellinger Theater and walked up to them. He wore light-colored trousers and a tan jacket and said not a word. Thinking the man wanted a handout, Rissell slipped his hand into his pocket, feeling for a quarter. At that moment, the man, swinging underhand, emptied the small jar of acid in Riesel's face. My gosh, my gosh, Riesel cried, his hands clawing his skin, end quote. So Riesel was rushed to the hospital. Doctors tried to save his eyes. They couldn't. Riesel would later say that the sulfuric acid made it feel like his entire face was on fire. So it was later established by the U.S. attorney that Dio had ordered this horrendous attack. 
Neff goes on to some detail about this. Eventually, the poor schlub who was contracted to blind resell was himself murdered after the attack received national media attention. And probably more than anything else, this Taliban-like assault on a journalist and the free press created the political pressure for the Senate to begin its own investigation into the unions and the mob, as it should have been. This was a major, major story. And I do think it's an example of the mob going way too far. And this is why all the heat is coming down. Okay. Now it should be said, Hoffa certainly did business with Johnny Dia, but there is no evidence that he had anything to do with the blinding of resale. And Dia wasn't the only mobster, again, that Hoffa would work with. He had numerous relationships. Many people know this, but it was the Teamsters pensions that loaned the money that the mob used to build the first resorts and casinos in Las Vegas. He worked initially with Detroit mobsters like Tony Giacalone as a way to counter efforts from the big trucking companies in the 1930s and 1940s who would hire thugs to break strikes. So this is something that I think people forget, but in the first part of the 20th century, the local city's mafia may be on both sides of the labor management divide because management would also hire, you know, toughs to break strikes. And so Hoffa would say that he was, you know, this alliance that he forged, you know, with some of these organized crime figures allowed him to have the weapon of calling strikes without risking his members being sent to the hospital. And, uh, you know, he would say that to justify it. I think it's more complicated than that. And, and Hoffa certainly is guilty of a lot of motivated reasoning. But I just think it's important to kind of get his perspective out there. Other point here is that despite Hoffa's alliance with the mob, the Teamsters under Hoffa improved the contracts for truckers all over the country. He gets them vacation, medical, dental, a real pathway to the American middle class, the National Master Freight Agreement of 1964. It was a breakthrough for truckers all over the country, and that would not have been possible without Jimmy Hoffa. So in this respect, I think it's unfair to lump Hoffa in with other corrupt labor leaders of the era, like his predecessor, George Beck, who just, they stole money from the union's coffers for their his own personal benefit. Or for that matter, Hoffa's successor, James Fitzpatrick, who would roll over for the mafia and give them whatever they wanted. Hoffa was willing to work with the mob, that's certainly true, but he was never controlled by the mob. And that's really probably the main reason, I would say at the end of the day, why the mob eventually murdered him. Okay, so what's the problem then with all that, with Bobby Kay putting the bullseye on Jimmy Hoffa? I mean, he may not have blinded Victor Riesel, but he was into some dirt. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Bobby had Hoffa on tape negotiating the paper unions with Johnny Dio. So who cares if Bobby set out to get Hoffa? Hoffa really was corrupt. You know, sometimes there are witches. All right, so there are a few answers here. You could make the argument that it's not explicitly illegal, at least what Hoffa did, as opposed to what Johnny Dio was doing in that part of it. Okay, more important, Bobby Kennedy made it personal with Hoffa. He pursued the man, not the crime. And here it's worth reading from a famous speech in 1940 by then Attorney General Robert Jackson delivered to U.S. attorneys at the Great Hall of Justice. And, you know, I'd say that he's sort of, Jackson says it better than anybody else. And I want to just quote it here for a little bit. Quote, if the prosecutor is obliged to choose his cases, it follows that he can choose his defendants. And herein is the most dangerous power of the prosecutor, that he will pick people that he thinks he should get rather than pick cases that need to be prosecuted. With the law books filled with a great assortment of crimes, a prosecutor stands a fair chance of finding at least a technical violation of some act on the part of almost anyone. In such a case, it's not a question of discovering the commission of a crime and then looking for the man who has committed it. It is a question of picking the man and then searching the law books or putting investigators to work to pin some offense on him, end of quote. Well, that describes Bobby Kennedy to a T. And just to back this up, I want to 
share an anecdote here, a small story that I think illustrates the point. Before the hearings even start, Hoffa approaches a former Secret Service agent named John Cy Chesty to essentially be his spy or mole within the McClellan committee. He would basically, Hoffa's like, hey, I'm going to pay you cold hard cash for internal committee documents. Chesty reported this to Bobby Kennedy. So he's a double agent who then in turn kind of wants to kind of keep the, the scam going. And Chesty is going along with Hoffa, but it's a sting. And Chesty meets Hoffa at one point in DuPont Circle. He's handed the money. He gets documents. Next day, Hoffa is arrested by the FBI. All right. I want to quote here, as Jack Goldsmith writes in his superb memoir in history in Hoffa's Shadow, we quoted from that before, Bobby was so confident of a conviction that he said that if, if Hoffa got off, if he was acquitted, he would jump from the Capitol dome. Well, Hoffa did beat the rap. There were a couple of reasons for it, but it was in part because he got a very good lawyer who got Kennedy to acknowledge on the record that he had slipped committee documents to friendly reporters to generate positive coverage before the committee's hearings. He also managed to get the great boxer Joe Lewis to sort of stand in the courtroom on his side. And the, it was a D.C. jury, which had a lot of African-Americans, so that may have been a part of it as well. Anyway, he was acquitted by the jury in early July. And after he wins the case, Hoffa instructs one of his aides, this guy Chucky O'Brien, to purchase a parachute at an army surplus store and deliver it to Bobby's office at the Senate, suggesting, all right, well, you said you'd jump from that Capitol dome. All right. So after a jury did not convict Hoffa in a courtroom, Bobby Kennedy did his best to convict Jimmy Hoffa in the press. And like Johnson and Cohn, Hoffa stayed hated. And this was particularly nasty because the Teamster Convention was coming up in September of 1957, and Hoffa was on the ballot to replace Beck, whom Bobby himself had exposed for his graft effectively clearing the way for Hoffa to assume leadership of the union. So in a sense, Bobby was using his perch in the Senate to campaign against Hoffa within the Teamster Union. And here's Goldsmith again on Bobby's reaction to Hoffa's acquittal in the Chesty case. Quote, After the 1957 acquittal, a different motivation was born and would steadily grow. Revenge. With each Hoffa victory, Kennedy got angrier became more vindictive, and invariably cut more corners. RFK pulled out the stops to demolish Hoffa during his scheduled testimony before the committee the following month. He blanketed Teamsters' offices with subpoenas. Kennedy had also cajoled the IRS to depart from its policies to let him fish through Hoffa's income tax returns, looking for wrongdoing without any inkling that a tax crime had been committed. End quote. All right, so this gets to another RFK tactic. He treats Hoffa like he's guilty even though he was acquitted in the Chesty case in a D.C. court. And by the way, he would also be acquitted for these other unrelated indictments that he was under in New York, which involved his own illegal surveillance of various adversaries that Hoffa had with these things called minifones. So Hoffa, for this time, is he keeps beating the rap, but RFK keeps acting as though he's a felon. And I'm going to sort of play a very short clip. It's a short film that was made in 1957 by the Teamsters. It's kind of like Teamster propaganda that hammers this point that even when the courts acquits Hoffa, Bobby keeps painting him in this criminal light. Because with this committee, even if you're declared innocent, they still think they have the right to call you guilty. Mr. Hoffa tried to fix this committee staff. I beg your pardon? You heard him. What'd you say? I said you tried to fix the committee staff, and while you got off, you had no business getting off. I don't agree with you, Senator, that I don't have a right as American citizen to be found innocent by a jury because it don't please certain people in this country. Okay. Now, for Bobby's part, he claimed, unconvincingly, I should say, that it was not the committee's purpose to convict Hoff of a crime. 
I suppose that's technically true, but it's really belied by Bobby's own behavior. For example, Bobby refers like 17 criminal complaints to the Justice Department in this period, and at least for eight of them, the Justice Department said the referrals lacked any, you know, real evidence. Anyway, here's Bobby Kennedy in a 1959 interview barely concealing his enmity towards the Teamster boss. You're not too disappointed in the fact that you have missed uh, two court convictions of Mr. Hoffa? Well, that's not our purpose. I, d I don't think that he belongs as head of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Yeah. I think that that is a, a national disgrace and uh, most unfortunate. But uh, that is not our problem. All right, so I think there's an important lesson in all of this for today, and that is that Bobby's legal war against Jimmy Hoffa in this period backfires entirely. He did everything he could to blacken Hoffa's reputation before the 1957 Teamster Convention in the hopes that he would not be elected the powerful union's president. But Bobby's attacks on Hoffa ended up making him even more popular with his union. Sound familiar, people? I mean, isn't that a parallel of what we're seeing now with Trump? I mean, just listen to Trump at a rally responding to the latest indictments from New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg. But you know what? It gets so much publicity that the case actually gets adjudicated in the press. And people see it's bullshit, and they go and they say, it's unfair. And now listen to Jimmy Hoffa on Dick Cavett's show talking about the legal crusade against him. That if they can do this to Jimmy Hoffa, they can do it to anybody in this country. And everybody thought I was feeling sorry for myself, but that wasn't the question. What I meant, and what now people understand in government, who thought they were higher than God themselves, didn't realize that once the media and the United States government, all of its power and money, take after any single individual in the United States, they can destroy that individual. And you see that there's a certain kind of, both Trump and Hoffa have done a lot of norm violating, and we know that Hoffa eventually did break the law. We will be getting into that a little bit later on in this monologue. But the point is that when you sort of persecute it, it does have this boomerang effect. In the case of Trump, we can say that he's, his prospects for winning the Republican primary for the 2024 election has increased as a result of Alvin Bragg's reckless and stupid indictment. And in the case of Jimmy Hoffa, we can see that Bobby Kennedy's targeting of him, the way that he did singling him out, only made him more popular in his union and helped him probably secure the presidency of the Teamsters. So now the year is 1960, and Bobby Kennedy is off the McClellan Committee to work full-time managing his brother Jack's presidential campaign. This is where Bobby earns his reputation for ruthlessness. Now, by 2023 standards, some of RFK's dirty tricks were quaint, but in the context of the era, they represented a new kind of hardball. For example, in the Wisconsin primary, where Kennedy had faced strong opposition from Hubert Humphrey, a senator from neighboring Minnesota, Bobby spread the false rumor that Humphrey's campaign had taken illicit Teamster cash from his bet noir, Jimmy Hoffa. In other example of campaign trickery, Kennedy's surrogate, Franklin Roosevelt Jr., attacks Humphrey for dodging military service. The truth was that Humphrey was disqualified from active duty because he was not only married and considered having an essential civilian job, he taught Army Air Corps cadets, but he had a number of health maladies, including color blindness, but also serious conditions that really did disqualify him from military service. So it was a bit of a low blow. The Kennedy campaign also arranged for anti-Catholic mailers to go out to Catholic neighborhoods right before the primary. Kind of a perfect little move there, energizing a natural constituency for the Catholic Jack Kennedy. 
Finally, in those primaries and also in the general the campaign, very likely bought votes through what's known as walk around money. That kind of thing happens all the time or it's happened a lot in the 20th century. But there is some reports of that, including a New York Times dispatch that said that it was well known in the Wisconsin primaries that a vote for Kennedy was worth $5. Okay. Now, at the Democratic convention that summer in 1960, Bobby's feud with Lyndon Johnson is rekindled. Jack decides that he needed Lyndon Johnson on the ticket to keep the southern states in his camp. And by the way, I should say Joe Kennedy, who humiliated and ridiculed by Johnson, of course, in this retelling of that story about when he was fired as the ambassador to the UK, also thinks that Johnson's the right move. Bobby thinks it's a terrible idea, and he does everything in his power to try to stop it. Now, all of this is happening at the Ambassador Hotel between the Kennedy Suite and the Johnson Suite, which are just two floors below the Kennedy Suite. I'm going to spare every detail here because it gets confusing and different people remember different things differently. What is clear is that Bobby tried to persuade Johnson and his allies to decline his brother's offer and that there would be a floor rebellion from progressives and unions at the convention if Johnson was on the ticket. Bobby offered Johnson the chairmanship of the Democratic National Committee instead. In the meantime, Jack Kennedy had called Lyndon Johnson and basically made the offer. So it was very confusing. Johnson, by the way, did not need much persuading. He'd already calculated this out, and he's just, he determined that he would be too old by 1968 and that his best chance for ever being president would be being the vice president. And, you know, his lifelong goal was to, was to become president of the United States. So he thought this was his best path. He really wanted it. Unfortunately, well, I should say, one of his most important mentors who we talked about earlier, Sam Rayburn, thought it was a terrible idea because the vice presidency... Technically, this is not the era of like when Dick Cheney was like involved in a lot of things in the government where he's a very powerful vice president. This is a it's a different era when a lot of people considered vice president to be like a nothing job. OK, so what happens here is that simultaneously Johnson gets Kennedy. He says, listen, I really want to do this, but you're going to need to persuade Sam Rayburn because I couldn't do it without his blessing. So he gets Kennedy to try to persuade Rayburn to change his mind. Meanwhile, Bobby is trying to get Johnson to back out of the deal. That's how crazy stuff is in 1960. Eventually, Rayburn is on board. You know, okay, Jack, Jack Kennedy can be very persuasive. But in all of this confusion with Bobby going back and forth, talking to Johnson's advisors and aides, it was really unclear what the status of the offer was. So in this scene, which I'm getting again from the indispensable Robert Cara, Sam Rayburn is walking into the suite and Bobby is there waiting for him. He goes in, closes the door, and the two men have very harsh words. And Bobby storms out without saying anything in a huff. And here I want to quote again from Mr. Caro. Everyone asked Sam Rayburn what had happened inside. And none of them would ever forget Sam Rayburn in that moment. He was old and he was blind. And as would soon become apparent, he was very, very ill. But as he told them what had happened, he didn't seem old or blind or ill. He said that Bobby Kennedy had told him that liberal and labor leaders were going to stage a floor fight against Johnson's nomination and that perhaps Johnson would prefer to withdraw. He said he asked Bobby one question. Are you authorized to speak for your brother? Bobby said no. Quote, come back and see the Speaker of the House when you are, Sam Rayburn said. All right. End of quote. Isn't that a great story? All right. Johnson does get on the ticket. We know this, despite Bobby's best efforts to prevent it. And as Kennedy goes into the general, it's a real nail-biter. One important event that helped the Kennedy camp came on October 19th, 1960. This is when Martin Luther King stages a sit-in at Rich's department store in Atlanta. Everyone is arrested, including King. Later in the day, everyone but King is released on bail. King is brought to then another prison. And this is very, very concerning 
His supporters are fearing for his life because this is Georgia. So some Kennedy advisors recommended that Jack call Coretta Scott King and comfort her in this tense moment, which, by the way, he did. When Bobby finds out about it, he loses his mind. He berates this advisor, Harris Wofford, also berates, I guess, Sergeant Shriver also suggested it. And he said, listen, this is going to kill us in the South. He repeated this line that three Southern governors had told him, which is, if JFK came out for Jimmy Hoffa, Nikita Khrushchev, or Martin Luther King, they would throw their states to Nixon. Okay, that's like a, he would say that. All the while, now, so that, that makes Bobby look like a, an a-hole, right? Okay, all the while, though, Bobby is also, on the other hand, planning something incredibly audacious. Okay, so he's working the phones. He gets the governor of Georgia on the line, who in turn gets him in touch with the judge, J. Oscar Mitchell, who had sentenced King to the jail time. They had four conversations on the phone. Bobby let it slip that if Kennedy won, Mitchell would be an honored guest at the White House. Mitchell eventually relented and lets King out on bail. And of course, when Jack Kennedy is the president, Mitchell did indeed get his invitation. So interesting. Now, I think that story tells us a whole lot about Bobby Kennedy. On the one hand, I mean, this is a heroic thing that he did. He may have saved Martin Luther King's life. And it was also smart politics, as we'll see. But on the other hand, I don't know, this is not a great precedent in the abstract in this following sense. Do, you, do people think it's okay that the brother of a presidential candidate who would go on to become an attorney general should call a judge to get him to change a sentence on someone? I mean, that's a perversion of justice, even though in this particular case, it was corrupted justice in the first place. I'm not saying he shouldn't have done it. Obviously, it's a great thing that Martin Luther King was like let out of jail. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you just said this, if you had all the facts and you didn't have that context and you just said the campaign manager calls the judge, gets this guy out of jail, it's it's a troubling precedent. It's not something you want to sort of see. That is, by the way, if that, if that happens all the time, you have a very corrupt judiciary system. Okay. After King's release, JFK had cemented his position with progressives and black voters ahead of the election. Nixon, who they're running against, would later say in his memoir that the failure of the Eisenhower Justice Department or the White House not to say anything about that arrest probably cost him the election. Dick Nixon also said that Bobby and his team were, and this is in his memoir, the most ruthless group of political operators ever mobilized for a presidential campaign. I vowed that I would never again enter an election at a disadvantage by being vulnerable to them or anyone on the level of political tactics. Famous last words from the man who ordered the Watergate break-in. Anyway, isn't that interesting? That Like, Nixon's like, wow, you know, I was really soft. And then, you know, Bobby Kennedy taught me how to, how to play the hardball game the way it's played, so to speak. All right. And in a sense, I guess you could say he's right because Bobby, you know, he hired researchers that dug up a personal loan of more than $200,000 that the eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes made to Nixon's brother. Also, there were, you know, enough irregularities, by the way, in the 1960 election, which was incredibly close, that Nixon at one point, you know, briefly considered then dropped the idea of challenging the election. In particular, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's another rabbit hole, but there's a lot of evidence that Mayor Daley's political machine plussed up the vote in Chicago for Kennedy. There's also, of course, the walk-around cash that was provided by Joe Kennedy, that there's a lot of that in West Virginia. Recent scholarship has largely debunked the popular myth that the mafia fixed the vote for Kennedy in 1960. I mean, it's clear that there were certain leading mob figures that supported Kennedy. There's no real evidence that they anything that they did in particular made any difference in the final vote. i
so that is part one of Bobby Kennedy and his enemies. Stay tuned for part two. And now my interview with Tevi Troy. Well, welcome back to The Re-Education. We are delighted to have returning guest, Tevi Troy, who is the Re-Education Podcast's chief presidential historian, also the creator of 1600 Lessons, which is a corporate leadership training program. And if anybody is interested in that in the listenership, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Author of several books, Tevi Troy, thank you so much for coming back. It's great to have you. Eli, thanks for having me. I love the show, and I'm especially honored to be the official presidential historian. Of well, it's, 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 of course. So today's topic is Robert F. Kennedy. He is an important figure, and one I think is of interest to presidential historians, because you could say he almost became president in 1968. And I've always been fascinated by Robert F. Kennedy, because you could say in his political career, he died very young at age 43, he really did kind of various, depending on when you're talking about him, whether it was the 1950s or the mid to late 60s before he was assassinated, he really did kind of come to, I guess, embody what you might say is the evolution of the from liberals to progressives in the Democratic Party. Would you say that's fair? He certainly embodied different aspects of American politics from yes. the anti-communist warrior on the McCarthy staff to anti-union guy when he was fighting Jimmy Hoffa to the liberal icon that he becomes in the late 60s to his brother's enforcer as attorney general. So yes, he embodied many aspects of the Democratic Party and it is interesting to see the evolution, but also not just his own personal evolution, but the evolution in his perception. And also, as a presidential historian, not just interested in him because he almost became president, which he did in 68, but he was the chief aide and the architect of the campaign of John F. Kennedy, who becomes president in 1960. And he is the chief antagonist of Lyndon Johnson, another president. Right. And obviously, he's important in the McCarthy years, which which was something that took place in the Eisenhower years. So he, he's in, involved in multiple presidencies over a two-decade period. So I want to let's start. I mean, I find it so interesting. Has there ever been a situation where the campaign manager who was seen as the sort of ruthless, you know, tough guy, the person who delivered, you know, all, if, if I've covered politics and you write as a historian about politics, it's very rare that you have a president who is often wants to be the sort of bearer of good news, the glad hander. But they always have somebody who is sort of like their their guy who's going to keep people in line and deliver the tough messages. And that was what Robert Kennedy was for his brother, John F. Kennedy. For then him to transform, obviously, after the assassination of JFK into this leading light of virtue, you know, sort of taking the role of the front man and you know, to sort of make that journey. Has anyone ever done that before? Uh, to me, that's fascinating because it's two different kinds of personalities. Yeah, you know, I thought you were going to ask, has anybody ever gone from that kind of enforcer guy to attorney general and at age 35 and as brother? Oh, well, that too. So, I mean, that's, that's, we can, that we're going to get into attorney general. But what but, I mean is that but, like, but, you yeah, know I I'm, see what you're saying. But, yeah. you know, I also wonder if the, if the kind of liberal press, liberal historians have a role in that. It's 
it's more okay to be the enforcer if you're doing it on the left than if you're doing it on the right. So I think there, there's a little more leeway that he was perhaps given right. in, in that evolution. Right. But Reagan famously, like Reagan never fired people directly. Right. It was always like, you know, left to somebody like, you know what I mean? Or like a Jim Baker played this kind of role for George H.W. Bush. He was his best friend. He was totally trusted. But Jim Baker was the one who said, oh, you know, if the, your, the APAC doesn't like this deal that I'm doing on the loan guarantees, well, you've got the number of the White House. I mean, that was his job versus George H.W. Bush, who didn't have to be the bad guy. So that's the part of it that I want to really sort of nail down, because like Bobby Kennedy kind of relished in it. He loved the competition. He liked going up against somebody. I think the interesting thing here is that as campaign manager, he was consummate political aide. Yeah. Aides are not necessarily politicians. And then later he evolves into a politician yeah. in part because of his family name and family fortune, which was <laughs> instrumental as well. We can't really o- overlook how much money Kennedy's had. Joe Kennedy had hundreds of millions of dollars and today he'd be a, a billionaire. So right. one, one of the wealthiest people in, in America. So Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Bobby, let's call him for the course of this conversation so we don't confuse him with his brother, but Bobby had this capacity to switch from aid, which he was in the 50s as a Senate aide and then as campaign manager, and then he becomes a political figure in his own right. I think that helped in that evolution, so he's not really enforcer guy. He's now a politician who can talk in story. It's a rare combination of gifts is what I'm trying to get at. You know what I mean? To be, you know, to be that. Now, let, let's let's do a little bit of level setting and kind of just do a little bit of history. The Kennedys are an interesting kind of family because Joe Kennedy made his fortune, some of it with some illicit connections, we could say. And certainly, you know, I would say, like a lot of people who were shaken by World War One. I, I mean, I don't want to necessarily impute bad motives here, but he took the wrong side of the outbreak of World War Two. He was famously fired by Franklin Delano Roosevelt a story that Lyndon Johnson loved to tell, like, you know, many years later, and it kind of came famous about how he was there in the room when he was, FDR was on the phone with Joe Kennedy and said, I'm going to fire his ass. And like, he'd love to tell that story. And I'm sure that was one of the reasons why Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy didn't get along. But, you know, the Kennedys had, were an important political family, Irish Catholic in Boston, and yet they were never fully accepted by the original Boston Brahmins and the Mayflower, you know, what we would call the Mayflower types. So there was always a sense, even though they accumulated enormous wealth, and we associate them today as kind of like American aristocracy, they themselves kind of always thought that they were, you know, hitting a glass ceiling. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it's hard to imagine to people today just right. how criticized or how marginalized the Irish were over 100 years ago. You know, besides right. no Irish need apply. They know everything we're talking about, intersectionality and race these days. But you know, there were some divisions within white ethnic Americans, and, and the Irish were near the bottom of that totem pole for a long time. And so they carried that chip. Right, especially in a city like shoulder. Boston, we should say. I mean, like, that was another thing. It's like, you know. Right. So uh, in Larry Ty's biography of Robert F. Kennedy, for example, he says that Joe Kennedy went to Harvard, but he was never considered for the Purcellian Club, which is kind of right, right. waspy club. So they, they, and then they moved incredible. to New York because they just didn't like, I mean, like there was a period where you think of this as a Boston, you know, Massachusetts family, and they have this famous Kennedy accent. But for, you know, basically Bobby Kennedy kind of grows up outside of New York, in upstate New York, right? And at one point, I think he lists his, his residence at Palm Beach, because they also had the compound in Palm Beach. So yes, yeah, they, right. They were, they were a, a well-traveled family. Yes, for sure. But, 
But you know, the, the thing about Joe Kennedy is he's he, a classic American story. Yes, he comes from a somewhat marginalized group in, in the Irish, but the guy knew how to make money. Even if some of it came from illicit sources, and it, you know, it probably did in prohibition and all that. He also he just knew how to find investment opportunities and take advantage of them. So he just he just had an eye for it and was incredibly successful at that. And you know, in America, money is its own aristocracy. So he was able to kind of force his family into this American aristocratic family, even though they never felt like they were fully accepted because of the Irish. And that's why, even though I would never say that the Kennedys were populists, like a William Jennings Bryan or a Donald Trump, they had something of a populist appeal. Even, I mean, like there's a part of me that looks at the Kennedys and, you know, thinks about that family and saying, why is it that so many poor people in 1968 saw Bobby Kennedy as like one of their own almost, or like John F. Kennedy as this sort of new voice who was going to get, you know, when today I think we would say, oh my God, like these guys are playing touch football in Hyannisport and, you know, they live this life of privilege. How could they possibly understand the struggles of, you know, an Appalachian farmer with no electricity? And yet that's sort of what happens with Bobby Kennedy is that in 68, when he's running for president, he connects with the most marginalized people in the country. Is that fair? Well, not only fair, but it also goes back to 1960. John yeah, F. Kennedy right. grows up in immense wealth, and he is seen as the candidate of the, the poor and the, the marginalized, right. whereas Richard Nixon grew up in terrible, hard-scrabbled poverty. I mean, wondering about where next meal's coming from, and he's seen as the candidate of the establishment. So I think the Kennedys managed to play this very, very well and to their advantage, and I, I think the Irish thing had something to do with it. It's not yeah. just the money that is looked at, but it's also where they're coming from and the way they were able to frame it. And I just want to do one more thing about sort of the upbringing, and then we'll get into the fun part and the politics. But that is... It's Bobby, all fun. It all is all fun. But Bobby Kennedy, sometimes it's, it's, it's maybe unfair to say this, but sometimes Bobby Kennedy was seen as the runt of the litter. He was the youngest son. Joe Kennedy played his children off of each other oftentimes. They were very competitive family. And you could say that Bobby Kennedy sort of felt like he was always fighting for his father's love and attention. And that made him tough. So when there's a story that I found in like kind of my research on this is that he goes to Harvard like his brothers and is determined to earn his letter in football in the Yale Harvard game, which is something that his two brothers didn't do. And it's not like if you take a look at Bobby Kennedy, he's thin and frail almost. I mean, like he's not an imposing guy. So how does he make the Harvard football team and manage to sort of play in the Harvard-Yale game and earn his letter? By just sheer toughness. And it's a little bit like Richard Nixon, who also played football. Like the two of them were not necessarily the most gifted people, but they had something in them that just made them greedy competitors. And they were like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to beat you. And so that's an, a side of Bobby Kennedy that I think is is always there, right? Bobby was not seen as perhaps the runt of the litter. He was the runt of the yeah, litter. Right. And, you know, they were pretty upfront yeah. about it. He was shorter than his brothers, who were all about six feet. Yeah. And he felt uncomfortable with women. All of this hit these were famously ladies' men. Bobby wasn't. He and was a he family was, man. He was a family man. He, you know, His wife Eunice was pregnant for half of the entire time that they were married. There have been some rumors of affairs, but they've never officially been sorted out. And it's certainly not to the degree that Ted Kennedy and John F. Kennedy were engaged in. So he just saw himself as a little different. Um, there's a great story that when he's a like, little boy, he wants to make his parents proud of him. So he gets this paper wrap to show that he's you know, 
out there doing work. Yeah. But his parents find out that he's using the family's chauffeur to take him around on the paper oh, that's route. Great. What a <laughs> and great they put story, it in, yeah. And they put it into it. But it just shows his desperation to be noticed and seen in this family of, you know, a, a lot of type A personalities. And it, it's hard to, it, it's easy to get overlooked in that family. And he's desperately trying to make his name. That's right. So, you know, like the Kennedys, he, he goes to Harvard, he joins the Navy. He, you know, then he goes, comes back, he goes to UVA, the University of Virginia Law School. He becomes somewhat interested in civil rights, although I would say that in the 1950s, this is not really something he's known for. He joins McCarthy's committee. I want to ask you about this because in the moment in 68, when, and well, actually even in 64, when he's running for the New York Senate seat after he, he's questioned about his role on the McCarthy committee. And he sort of says, listen, I was only on it for six months. I wrote the report that denounced McCarthy in the Senate. And yet he's also one of the few people who actually attended McCarthy's funeral. So how do you sort of sort that? Because he's definitely running away from it by 1964. When the odor, we should say, you know, we've talked about Joe McCarthy on the show before. Joe McCarthy is a demagogic Republican senator who claimed with no evidence that he had lists of communists in the army and the state department. And, you know, he, he would, you know, he would level these absurd charges and they were not, you didn't follow them through, even though there, there were communist spies at the time. And there were other people like Richard Nixon who did smoke them out. But McCarthy was sort of seen as this guy who was engaged in the excesses of it. And, and so that's why Bobby, it's, it's odd that Bobby Kennedy would be associated with it. So, how would you describe that period when he's a young staffer, you know, and a kind of enthusiastic anti-communist, and then he tries to distance himself from it? I got, I got to start here with, with a quote from Irving Kristol, who perhaps yeah. is the godfather of the re-education podcast. For sure. Where, yeah. where he writes his article yeah. in Tom a famous Wolf, article. Tom Wolfe, George Orwell, and Irving Kristol, yes. <laughs> he writes his famous article in commentary, I think it's called McCarthy and his en- 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 enemies in the early 50s, and he says, about Joe McCarthy, the American people know that he is anti-communist. About his enemies, they know no such thing. <laughs> so there is just this sense that McCarthy was wrong on the facts and he was demagogic, but he was out there against communism. And I think Bobby Kennedy signed up for that fight. And he did feel very strongly and warmly towards McCarthy. I mean, not only does he go to the funeral, as you say, but he visited McCarthy on his deathbed few weeks before he died. He goes to the private burial in Wisconsin. And this is after McCarthy dies, after he's censured by the senator, after he starts to be in bad odor. If Kennedy really, Bobby Kennedy really wanted to run away from him, he could have run away from him at that point, but he chose not to. And his big problem with McCarthy and the reason he left after a relatively short time was his enmity with Roy Cohn, who was the chief counsel on that committee. And one of, I would say, the, the four primary enemies in Kennedy's life, there's more than four, but if, if you got this kind of quad, it's Lyndon of Johnson, Cohn, Lyndon Johnson, Jim, Jimmy Hoffa, yep, right, and 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 Jagger Hoover. I mean, those are the four people that Kennedy hated the most, and who hated him the most. So it's kind of ironically, ironically, you know, it's Jagger Hoover who stealthily and sneakily maneuvers to marginalize McCarthy, all the while making McCarthy think that he's his ally. That is some Machiavellian stuff right there. So, And we have to give props to Dwight Eisenhower. Of course, Dwight Eisenhower, too. Yes, absolutely. Who recognized the danger of McCarthy, but also knew that denouncing him in some ways would make him stronger. So if if 
Eisenhower did that from the presidential platform, that would not help. But he works behind the scenes with Lyndon Johnson to make the hearings on TV and as disadvantageous to McCarthy as possible. And so he was instrumental in McCarthy's undoing. But Bobby has that period. I mean, you, you can't deny it that he, he does work for McCarthy and feels strongly about McCarthy. He hates Cohn and, and he hates him throughout his life and actually goes after him as attorney general in one of his multiple vendettas. But, well, but so, I think by 64, it's necessary, I think, to yeah. show within the Democratic Party that you were opposed to McCarthy. And that's why he has that kind of you know, that weak response to, oh, I was only there six months. Okay, so here's my question. Do we look at this? There's one way to look at this, because I have to say I go into this sort of I've always been cool on the kind of Kennedy legend and the Kennedy myth personally, because, you know, there's a lot of mistakes that get whitewashed. If you care about history, the Kennedys, there's so much hagiography about the Kennedys that passes off, as we talked about, about for history that, you know, there, I almost feel like if you are center right, you have an obligation to look at some of this stuff very skeptically. However, you can make an argument, and I think I could be persuaded of this, I want to bounce this off you, that Bobby Kennedy's personal loyalty to Joe McCarthy in a moment when he was at his lowest, maybe is there something admirable about it in terms of his interpersonal relations, even though the politics look really bad, and that his ability to win over the student left in 1964 and later 1968 to a certain extent, even though most of them in 68 were with McCarthy, is a testament to his political skills, which were kind of maybe underestimated in 1964. Just to say his ability to sort of say, yeah, that was a part of my life, but I, it's, you know, I did it. I don't know. I mean, is that is that a too charitable way to look at it? Or was well, he a big let's hypocrite? Put it this way. I mean, yeah. you know, Joe Kennedy famously said, Bobby's my boy. When he hates you, you stay hated. Yeah. <laughs> you have this ability to carry, to carry out these vendettas. But at the same time, he showed some personal loyalty to McCarthy, and that, that was at political risk to him. So I guess, I guess we can give him credit in, in that regard. Well, it, it sometimes also shows that political virtue is distinct from personal virtue. To be a good friend sometimes is not always to be on the right side of history. You know, what's that famous line about, like, I, always, I, I think if I had to choose between my friends and my country, I would have the carriage to choose my friends or something like that. Like, it's the... It's it shows that it's it's a complicated question, which is to say it maybe speaks to Bobby Kennedy's character, even though it also speaks to the fact that he was, you know, kind of participated in something that we now look at as an abusive, abusive power at the time. Right. But but Bobby Kennedy, as we'll see for the next 10 years before we get to that, that Santa period, he didn't mind abusive power. right? Oh, no, 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 he did not. <laughs> Using government to pursue his own ends was was what he was there for. So right, but it's. Just I'm fascinated by death. figures. I mean, I, I think I'm fascinated by a figure like Bobby Kennedy because of the paradoxes and the contradictions in him. So now let's just talk a little bit about one of the great. Well, I mean, I think his greatest rivalry is really with Lyndon Johnson, and there's a famous scene. It's depicted in Caro's latest biography of Lyndon Johnson, where it's the 1960 convention. Kennedy's definitely going to be the president, and Kennedy. John, Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy wants Lyndon Johnson because he's going to secure the South. Bobby Kennedy thinks it's a terrible idea. Bobby Kennedy, though, is the campaign manager. So as a, as a loyal staffer, he goes to the Johnson suite and says, Jack wants you to be his vice president. But are you sure? 
you want to be vice president? Are you sure? Because, you know, it's a terrible job. And like, oh, man, I would I would hate to be vice president. So he's like delivering the message. He's being the dutiful staffer, even and while also undermining the choice and trying, hoping that Johnson will say no. And then Johnson says yes. And like Johnson at that moment, it's just like, you know what? That damn Bobby Kennedy, like it's like the vendetta is sealed at that point. Yeah, I mean, you said one thing I'll take slight issue with, which you say okay. Jack's definitely going to be president. He's definitely going to be the Democratic nominee. Oh, that's a good Very point. much up in the right. air, whether he's going to be president. And then the, re- the only reason I make this point, Eli, is because the reason they go to Lyndon Johnson yeah, is because they, they think he can secure Texas. And remember, this is a very, very different time in American politics where every state was in question. Every state was in contention. That didn't mean you could win every state. But every state was up for grabs in a way that it's not in today's blue and red division. So right. it was a really close run race in just the gaming it out. And it ended up being an incredibly close one run race in the, the reality of it. So that, that decision of who is vice president is incredibly important. And for my last book, for Fight House, I read eight or ten different accounts of that interaction between Kennedy and Does Carol get it right in your view? I think it's kind of lost in the mystery of the clouds of history because there's so many different versions of it okay. and it's clear there was passive aggressiveness on both sides at one point johnson says when he's told that kennedy is truck bobby kennedy wants to reach him he said whatever it is i don't want to talk to him <laughs> that's great and you know the vice presidency is on the line and th- and then kennedy s- sort of bobby does this sort of passive aggressive request you know you, you as you described it well eli it, you want it i don't know maybe you don't want to take it and then john f kennedy supposedly says to johnson well bobby's not really in the loop which is undermining his own brother so yeah. there's so many different accounts of exactly what happened but regardless johnson takes it kennedy is seen by johnson as not necessarily a good actor in all this their hatred is sealed from the 50s anyway when yeah that's and, right when, when when he was on mccarthy's staff but it's I guess it's extra sealed. Another stamp of, of, of hatred sealing, I guess, happens at that moment. And then they're stuck together in this administration. And, you know, they always say the two people you can't fire the administration are the first lady and the vice president. Well, in this case, there was a third person, Bobby Kennedy, because he was the president's brother. Right. And so Bobby is attorney general and the, really the chief advisor to John Kennedy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean Jones, he, he played a huge role in the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I mean, like you can, yeah. I mean... All the big stuff, Bobby, Jack turns to Bobby, of course, yeah. Right, and because he trusts him. Yeah. But at the same time, there's Lyndon Johnson, who is, you know, was the master, the titan of the Senate, and now he's in this position that is a marginalizing role, vice president, no matter who has it, no matter when, in, in many ways, but particularly marginalizing to Johnson, who said, I wouldn't trade a vote for a gavel, meaning vote in the Senate versus the gavel of presiding the and he ends up making that choice it ends up probably being the only path that he would have become president but it's a very difficult thousand days for him because he's constantly belittled and marginalized yeah they call Bobby. him uncle cornpone right and rufus cornpone yeah and they make fun of his wife and they, they don't invite him to their fancy parties at hickory hill and if they do on the rare occasions they do they invite him to what they call the quote losers table (laughs) (laughs) right i know it's so they're so petty in some ways and we have to like just to tell the listeners this is the kennedy administration and sometimes it's called camelot but i mean the only thing comparable would be the obama administration in terms of that you know it it was very cool the top celebrities in the country the the coolest 
socialites all Rat were pack. part of that circle. It, it's you don't always get that where especially if there's a Republican president. So there was a part of I imagine, you know, Lyndon Johnson who thinks he's a big deal. And he constantly kind of feels like, you know, a third wheel and like, you know, he's never going to have friends as glamorous as the Kennedys and that kind of stuff. Well, there's that, but he's also, he's just profoundly depressed because he right. has no role. Whenever he's given an assignment, Kennedy either takes it away from him or, or belittles him in it. He doesn't even want to go on the talk shows, which he used to love to do, and his because he's too upset about the, his lack of a role. And one of his press aides says, I have to keep making up excuses why Johnson won't go on the shows because he just, he just can't handle going on. So, well, yeah. And also, he, the other part of this is that you know, we have this, again, we have a, there's a hagiography, there's a sort of, there's something special about the Kennedy, especially, you know, the, the, the Kennedy administration because of the assassination, everything like that. But, you know, John F. Kennedy didn't really know that Congress like Lyndon Johnson. And so there was an element as well, right, where Lyndon Johnson was like looking at the Kennedys trying to get their budget and their various legislative priorities and civil rights passed or whatever. And he's like, you know, I could, I could do much better job than whoever they got, you know, working the hill. And I'm sure that was part of it. That would just, that was grinding Johnson up on that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you say Kennedy and know the Congress as well as Johnson, which is true, but nobody knew the Congress as well as Johnson. A very good point. He, yeah. was, he was really terrific at that. And again, he was marginalized, but the really interesting thing about this whole rivalry is yes, Kennedy's Bobby is abusive to Johnson and makes mean nicknames about him and does all these terrible things, but he just flips on a dime when the assassination happens. And suddenly Johnson was at the bottom of this relationship and now he's on top and he has the opportunity to make Kennedy's life miserable. And I, I think that's what makes this rivalry so fast. So like before we, we put put a button on the on the Johnson stuff, but just talk a little bit about that. I mean, he there was an almost bloodless phone call when he informs him that Jack was is dead, right? Just talk a little bit about that, about the Johnson-Kennedy once once Johnson then becomes to become president. So Bobby is the number one advisor to John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy is assassinated, and suddenly the, the Constitution says the vice president takes over. And this doesn't sit right with Kennedy, and there's nothing he can do about it, but he just feels off about it because he was the top advisor, and instead of him becoming president, now Lyndon is becoming president. And there's a constant series of I don't know if there are misunderstandings or misinterpretations between what happens. Kennedy feels that Johnson was too rushed in taking the oath of office and not being solicitous enough of the Kennedys after it happens. Johnson feels that Bobby stands him up by walking in late to the first cabinet meeting and they have a shouting match in the Oval Office. And afterwards, they don't speak for two months. Now, a lot of people don't speak for two months. But this is the president the and general. the sitting attorney general. Yeah. So that was, I remember that. That really struck me when I read that. Well, also, Johnson had this, I mean, Johnson had a, had a very strong and close relationship with J. Edgar Hoover. And Bobby Kennedy constantly thought as attorney general, he was being undermined by the director of the FBI. And the way it's supposed for, for to work. For good reason. We have, we have to talk about that for a second. Yeah, well, yeah, because... we will. Absolutely. But what I'm saying, the FBI is supposed to report to the attorney general. Right. It's not supposed to be like an independent above any oversight but it wasn't at that time. So there was that other element where, you know, Bobby was convinced that Hoover was out to get him. And then, like, you know, Johnson is such a great bullshitter. Just, like, tell him, no, what are you talking about? First I've heard from – first I've heard it is from you. I don't know what you're talking about. It Like, it's – and we have the advantage 
of having a lot of these Johnson tapes as we also have Nixon tapes. So we can actually kind of go and I'll play that in the monologue here in real time. But let's talk a little bit now about Bobby Kennedy as the attorney general. So Kennedy, I mean, he's the attorney general, but he's also chief advisor, chief political advisor to the president, which is not normal role for the attorney general. He also sees his role as attorney general to, well, it's not a role, but opportunity to carry out these vendettas against people he doesn't like. He goes after Roy Cohen twice, and Cohen is acquitted both times. But he also goes after Jimmy Hoffa, who he was unable to get convicted in the 50s when he was a Senate aide leading the McClellan Committee for Investigation of Hoffa. But he is more successful with all of the attorneys. I think there were 16 different people he put on, on the Hoffa case. And he does eventually get a conviction for Hoffa when he is attorney general, and Hoffa goes and serves time in prison starting in 67, interestingly, after Kennedy is no longer attorney general, but the, the conviction happens while Kennedy is attorney general. And look, you know, Hoffa was definitely associated with some shady people, and we all know about his uh, mysterious disappearance. Maybe he ended up in the end zone at the Meadowlands. Nobody knows where, where he is. But it's not right to have the attorney general of the United States personally going after someone. Well, it's it's a little bit like the barrier problem of the Soviet Union. I don't know, never compare America to the Soviet Union, but show me the man, I'll find you the crime. And that is the problem when you have an attorney general saying the target is Hoffa. I don't really care what the crime is. Like, just it's a little bit like with Trump right now with Alvin Bragg, if we're going to be real about it, which is like, you know, it's like, what do you got me for picking your toes in Poughkeepsie? This famous line from the French Connection. There's always this kind of thing. Dewey was accused of this. You know, I mean, there's always a kind of, it's an American kind of archetype, but it's also, I think we look back and we'd say what, you know, that, that Bobby Kennedy personalized this too much. And that's a bad thing. It just so happened if you agreed with Bobby Kennedy's politics and he was probably, you could say on generally on the right side when it came to the mafia and generally on the right side when it came to civil rights, these were good things, but you know, I'm, I have a huge problem with it. And then I want to get into some other stuff too, which is here. I have some sympathy. And this is largely because of Beverly Gage's new biography of Jagger Hoover. But Bobby Kennedy did approve the wiretaps on Martin Luther King and the people around him. This is something that I think the civil rights leaders around King knew at the time, or at least they, they, they were aware that Bobby Kennedy had to know because they were aware that, you know, King knew his phones were being tapped. But I do think what we now know, we know a lot more, you know, 60 years after this, King did have a legitimate communist agent in his inner circle. And at the time, I just think, you know, it, it, in Bobby Kennedy's case, I will not say the same for Hoover. I think Hoover really was racist. But in Bobby Kennedy's case, I just think it was a matter of, because I think they were also politically aligned with King, we should say during the campaign, King is the one who calls, I think, the governor of Alabama, when King is in the Birmingham jail. Kennedy. Bobby yeah, Bobby Kennedy does that, right? So, I mean, Bobby Kennedy Which is calls. a big deal and helps win the black vote for Absolutely big deal. Democrats, and secures which is not, right. Which is not a regular thing at the time, right? Right. And now and we they, think black vote goes Democrats, but it was not the case at the time. And it surprised, it surprised the, we should say, it surprised the people around King who were not expecting much. I mean, this is a hard thing for people to realize, but in 1960, Jackie Robinson supported Nixon the Republicans were seen as still the party of Lincoln and civil rights because the Democrats were a party that had this Southern contingent, which wanted to keep segregation. So it was not a, it's not a given that Martin Luther King would support Kennedy in 1960. 
And part of the reason I think he did is because of Bobby Kennedy's interaction, intervention, I should say, during this. But he's also the guy who approves the wiretap on King, which was later abused. So I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but I think it's an important point to kind of get out there. Yeah, I think it's a really good point and a good opportunity to talk a little bit about Hoover. So Hoover releases that information to the press or leaks it to the press in the late 60s when Kennedy is becoming this liberal icon that, that Kennedy had signed off on these wiretaps. And Hoover hates Kennedy. He doesn't think he should be attorney general. He thinks he's too young. He's the president's brother. He doesn't like the way he's disheveled, that he would not, he would roll up his sleeves when That's he right. was attorney general. And he, Hoover just couldn't stand that. Kennedy would bring his dog to the department. That's right. And it's Doug Brummus, B-R-U-M-U-S. And at one point, Brummus apparently did his business in the, outer, <laughs> the entryway to That's Hoover's right. office, which Hoover also does not approve of. So, I mean, Hoover can't stand Kennedy. And he also knows that there's a likelihood that if John F. Kennedy wins a re-election in 64, then they will feel comfortable going after Hoover and getting rid of him. By and so also Hoover kind of hates Jack Kennedy because he thinks Jack Kennedy's a playboy. And he's the one who discovers or his agents discover that he's has is having an affair with Sam Giancana, the Chicago mob boss's girlfriend, which he's like, this is terrible. I got to save the country. And, uh, you know, I guess like he isn't impressed by Bobby's like reaction to that. I guess he sort of thinks Bobby should be more freaked out or something or like. So there's an element there also where like Hoover just doesn't like the Kennedy family one bit. Right. And, and they don't like him either. And it is yeah. likely that they would have gotten rid of him. So, so Hoover is building up these files on both Kennedys so that he's ready if they try to go after him. That's 64. right. Ironically, Joe Kennedy at one point offered Hoover, I think, a job to be in like in charge of private security for like the Kennedy compound or something like that. Would have been interesting FBI. if he'd taken it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So change. so you got Bobby Kennedy. And then as we, we talked about how everything changes, you know, after the assassination and you know, Bobby Kennedy kind of goes into a depression, but then decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run. Well, he does, I guess, like a period where as attorney general, he does a lot of international travel, right? And here it's, I guess, important because he speaks out against, I guess, some American aligned dictators, or he speaks out for like more freedom in Latin America. But I guess that's important. It's beginning to say, but he decides he's going to run for Senate in 1964. Lyndon Johnson is delighted right? Lynn's like, great. It's terrific. And he then does something that is like, you have to listen to Lyndon Johnson tapes because he turns on a dime and it's just like, you know, we're, we're going to be together. We're going to do it for Jack. And he like tries to become his best friend in this period, even though he, he was like yelling at him a few months before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how Johnson is like, as soon as he feels like, all right, he's going to run for Senate. It's not my problem anymore. He, he's still wary of Kennedy. He still sees him as a rival, but you know, he's able to sort of turn on the charm, even though I think both of them know that they still hate each other. Yeah, well, he talks about in this period about the, the Bobby problem, where he thinks there's going to be a push to get Bobby on the ticket in 64 as oh, Johnson's right. yeah, vice yeah. president, right. which Johnson really doesn't want. And so that's why he's kind of delighted making him senator from New York, kind of gets him out of the White House, gets ends this talk about him being on the ticket. And so he's supportive of that effort. But I think what Johnson eventually realizes is that having Kennedy in the, in the Senate is not necessarily going to be a good thing for Johnson. Yes, I'll have a, a Democratic vote. In, in the, the 64 election was very good for the Democrats. They had plenty of votes. That wasn't his issue. But that Kennedy could potentially be a critic 
from within the Senate. You know, I don't think Johnson anticipated the degree to which Kennedy would eventually become a critic over the, the Vietnam War. But having a potentially powerful senator who does not like you very much is not necessarily a good thing for Johnson. I think that's Johnson's thinking in that weird period. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is the Bobby Kennedy path to opposing the Vietnam War? How does he right. get there? Because so, when he's when he's senator, he's running for senator, he's not that guy. So it it happens, you know, over this period of the mid sixties. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think it happens in three phases. So first, you've got the hardcore anti-communist Bobby Kennedy, who obviously we talked about. He worked on the McCarthy Commission. The Soviets write about him as how he's kind of this reactionary anti-communist opponent yeah. in, the, in the Soviet press. And so they, and I guess they had the measure of him at that time. And you also have to remember that the move towards more U.S. military presence in Vietnam is happening under the advice of Kennedy's own advisor. Because yeah. Johnson keeps Kennedy's military and defense and, and foreign policy advisors. So the national security establishment pretty much stays the same initially after Kennedy dies and when Johnson takes over. So the move to greater U.S. presence in Vietnam happens with, with Kennedy people. And Johnson thinks that kind of gives him some protection. Uh, and Kennedy acknowledges it, by the way. He says he's starts off. He doesn't. He's not attacking Lyndon Johnson the way that we associate, like the demonstrators in '68. Like, you know, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? He's like Johnson inherited this terrible situation from my brother. I mean, like he was, you know, pretty open about it. I think there was a period here where Kennedy, until he runs for president announces he's running for president and he announces in our terms late he announces in 68 that he's going to do it he is still very much making it very clear in public i'm on i'm a johnson man and like you know he's trying to kind of fin he he's he's finessing it because he wants to say he, does, he doesn't support the vietnam war but he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of johnson he doesn't want to get in a public fight with him yeah, and, and there's another interesting factor going on that is related yeah. to the rivalry. So the second phase is he's not opposed to the Vietnam War yet, but he is questioning some of the tactics. Maybe they should have a bombing halt, that kind of, that kind of stuff. So yeah. he's neither hawk nor dove for a brief period. And then as he's becoming more skeptical of the war, he's also wary of criticizing the war because he's just afraid that Johnson will do the opposite of what he does, what Kennedy says, just because he hates him so much. In fact, right. there's this great quote, where he says, Johnson hates me so much that if I call for snow, he'll try to make it rain. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's great. So Kennedy has this feeling that if he comes out as this dovish critic of the war, then Johnson will just double down and become more hawkish, which in some ways, Johnson is staying hawkish because he's afraid of Kennedy coming out on his right flank and saying, oh, you know, my, my brother's advisor said you should do this and stick with it, and you're going weak Nita. So Johnson is afraid of getting hit from Kennedy on both sides. He's not sure where Kennedy's going to come from. And then we get to the third phase where Kennedy becomes anti-Vietnam, critic of the war. And, and you mentioned correctly that he comes in late to the race, but it's not just late in terms of the chronology, but it's late after Gene McCarthy is a different McCarthy, right? There's not Joe McCarthy, the Republican. There's Gene McCarthy, the Democrat from Oregon, who enters, he doesn't actually enter the race against Johnson. He just says he's going to participate in, in about six primaries. So it wasn't actually a presidential announcement, which is weird from our perspective. And the big one is New Hampshire, where he get he doesn't win, but he gets within 10 points of Johnson, enough to put a scare into Johnson. 
And then suddenly Johnson looks vulnerable. And then Kennedy leaps into the race after that. And, the, oh, and then Gene Johnson surprises everybody. That's the other thing. Right. But right. first, the Gene McCarthy people are pissed. Right? Oh, yeah. They say, oh, well, you know, we took this leap and we were the ones to go in first. And we challenged Johnson. We showed he was weak. And now you're coming in. And then, as you say, Eli Johnson surprises everybody by saying he will not seek the Democratic nomination, nor will he run for president in 1968, which shocks everybody. Right. And then it's wide open because you got Vice President Humphrey, Clean Gene McCarthy, and Bobby Kennedy, and it is a wide open race. And Bobby Kennedy, at this point, it's really extraordinary because it's sadly, we now know he's only got a few more months to live, but he really dives into this campaign and decides to campaign seeking the votes of people who had never really been engaged before in American politics. Can we talk a little bit about that? He'd already kind of developed contacts with Cesar Chavez and the, and the, 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 the growers of the, or the, I think the people, the farm workers who were protesting against the growers of the Central Valley in California. He'd already obviously had his support from the civil rights movement who were, were definitely behind Bobby Kennedy. And he was, you know, there's a famous scene, which I'll play in the monologue where he, you know, announces the death of Martin Luther. He announces that Martin Luther King has been killed in a campaign stop in Indianapolis and he participates in the funeral. So, but it's this, he decides he's going to like engage in Appalachia. He's talking about poor people. Talk a little bit about that because this is where you see this stretch where I think Bobby Kennedy then is cementing his legacy for all time in some ways. Right. Without realizing it. He doesn't realize yeah. it's going to be all time at the time. But yes, he was affected by the poverty he saw in Appalachia, but also the poverty he saw in Bed-Stuy, New York. And remember, he is a senator oh, that's from right. New York. I mean, yes. people often forget that. So that really has an impact on him. So he does kind of take a more progressive turn in these years. He's talking about anti-poverty programs, what we can do to alleviate the poverty in the U.S. He's a full-on advocate for civil rights by this point. And that you, you mentioned that speech in Indianapolis, which I think is really important and worth talking about, where Martin Luther King is tragically assassinated in 1968, and there are urban riots that break out in most major urban centers in America, but not Indianapolis, where Bobby Kennedy speaks, and he says, my brother was also killed by a white man, and he quotes from the poet Aeschylus, and he gives this really moving, off-the-cuff talk, and that talk really helps alleviate the situation and, and, and lessen the tension in Indianapolis. And, and I think that speech really goes a long way towards some. By the way, there's, there's one other city where there aren't the riots, and that's Boston because of James Brown. So James Brown is having a concert in Boston, and the re and, and they this has been documented, but like the reason they say we didn't have riots that after King's assassinated is because of those. It's because James Brown decided to have a concert and he addresses the crowd. It's a kind of amazing story. It's like Bobby Kennedy and James Brown in that one moment there. Yeah. There's actually one more city that has an oh. interesting story, which is New York in 1968, where John Lindsay goes up to Harlem against the advice of his advisors. And this is recounted in Vid Canada's excellent book, The Uncomfortable City. And that yeah. kind of helps alleviate the tension in New York. Oh, yes. so so what happens with, with Lindsay? Does he... Is he successful or there, there are... He is successful. Oh, he is. So okay, New good York, for him. So New York does not have the same problems that, that many, many other cities had, including Washington, where Lyndon Johnson is kind of embattled and, and trapped in the White House as there's riots going on all around. That's right. And so I think, I, I guess, you know, not as, as, as we're sort of 
approaching here, I want to talk about, you know, sort of like concluding thoughts. And I want to get to some other things about the memory of Bobby Kennedy. But he is murdered by someone named Sirhan Sirhan. And it's so interesting because we are describing this transformation of this figure who is becoming, you know, a progressive icon. And yet he's murdered because he supports Israel the year before in the Six Day War. That is Sirhan Sirhan's stated explanation for his horrific deed. I mean, it's it's maybe hard for, for listeners to realize this, but Israel was something of a progressive cause in 1968, right? It absolutely was. And there were divisions yeah. in the Lyndon Johnson White House where the so-called conservative military establishment was critical of Israel and they didn't want to support Israel. And the progressive young aides in the White House, including my former mentor, Ben Wattenberg, were agitating with Lyndon Johnson and saying, you've got to support Israel in this case. At one point, Larry Levinson and, and Wattenberg are, are pushing for supporting Israel. And Johnson yells at them and says, you and Wattenberg are Zionist dupes. I love that phrase, Zionist <laughs> dupes. But, but that was the liberal position, which was to be pro-Israel in 67. And in 68, when Sirhan Sirhan, the Palestinian who hates Israel and hates Kennedy's support for the 67 war, murders Kennedy, it is on the one-year anniversary of the 1967 Six-Day War. Now, I think people kind of forget to talk about that, or kind of, that's kind of gets lost. It's a very it. important point, because it's not necessarily true that the... First of all, the left, the new left of 1968, hates Israel. And the left in Europe at the time, the student protesters of Europe, also hate Israel. I mean, so in the same moment that you have the progressives sort of being pro-Israel, you also have, you know, like the Red Army faction training with the PFLP in Jordan. You have you have like this weird kind of confluence of things where it's like there's a division on the left side of between. I mean, I, I still think of it as progressive because I mean, we should talk about this because, you know, the poverty that Kennedy sees and then brings attention to the to the country by touring these places I think it would shock the conscience of anyone, but the solution is this total statist, almost, you know, social Democrat approach. We're going to create new jobs. We're going to pay local community leaders all this money, and we don't really care how much we spend. It's We're going to just do all, you know what I mean? And so that's, I consider that to be a kind of progressive approach, even though there is the new left, the Black Panthers celebrated his assassination that are in a very different place. I think you're totally right to yeah. talk about this division that, that we don't necessarily see to the same degree today. Right. People on the left are on the left. And, and you know, Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema were not representative of kind of the mainstream left against the radical left like you see today. It's just, it's, it's just a different configuration. Right. And that was the big tension in the country in those times was between the kind of normal or the progressive left, people who voted for Kennedy and Johnson, and then this radical new left. And they are the ones who are anti-Israel. But the standard mainstream Democratic position at the time is to be pro-Israel and pro-Kennedy. And, and, and in many cases, even pro-Vietnam War. That doesn't mean hostility to the Vietnam War on the left could really emerge later. I mean, look, 1972, Richard Nixon wins a landslide election against George McGovern, who was the dovish, somewhat friendly to the new left candidate who was against the Vietnam War. And, you know, there's basically a referendum on the Vietnam War that the Vietnam War and, and Nixon win overwhelmingly. So you have this massive tension between the, the left that I think 
Bobby Kennedy represents and then this new left or the radical left. They're, they're just different. Animals. Absolutely. So let's talk about now the Bobby Kennedy legacy. Is it fair to say that for a lot of Americans, particularly kind of traditional liberal Americans, progressive Americans, he represents like what would have been in their view? Because Johnson was always, you know, Lyndon Johnson is responsible for the passage of the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act and the War on Poverty. Lyndon Johnson's a very consequential president. But he he really is a very flawed figure as well, not just because of how he treated his personal aides and his past positions on civil rights where he was very much part of the Southern segregationist caucus in the Senate, but also because of his role in kind of escalating the Vietnam war. Bobby Kennedy, for some reason, kind of skates, even though you could say that he's very much responsible as attorney general and everything like that. He doesn't get tarred with any of that. He's just seen as this, like what could have been, I wish we had a Bobby Kennedy, you know, and it seems like every four years, Democrats are looking for another Bobby Kennedy, even more so than a Jack Kennedy. Is that fair? I think it is fair. I think a number of things happen, both internal and external. Externally, first you have the martyrdom of John F. Kennedy, which yeah. colors the perception going 100%. forward. So yeah. it allows Robert F. Kennedy to emerge as this liberal icon in a way that he wasn't in the 50s when he was, let's say, working for McCarthy. Second is the assassination of Bobby Kennedy himself, right? Who knows what might have been, but they can ascribe whatever they want to the direction That's right. he was going. Third is he really did make some changes going to become anti-Vietnam, being this anti-poverty warrior. So Kennedy himself was changing. And also there's some sense that Kennedy was maturing to some degree. I mean, he was less of a vendetta-driven person and used more shoring rhetoric in, in this period. And Do you believe that? You know, sometimes, it, sometimes it comes with age. I think there was something to it now. You know, part of it is he's not attorney general, so he doesn't have the same vendetta capacities. Part of it is some of the targets of his enmity are out of the picture in a way, right? Hoff is in jail. He tried and did get con. Cone. Hoff is in jail. Johnson is certainly weakened. Hoover is aging and he won't be FBI head for, for many more years. So in some ways, he doesn't have this new set of enemies. And, and his staff at the time, they all talk about how the greatest privilege of their lives was to work for Bobby Kennedy. And so it just suggests that he was, I guess, more inclusive and less abusive boss than perhaps he'd been in the past. But why is it you think that at the same time, the side of Bobby Kennedy where, you know, he was working for McCarthy, you know, he, he clearly abused his power as attorney general. He was this very tough kind of brass knuckle, you know, bare knuckle political figure, you know, as he managed his brother's campaign. It seems to be lost to history. I mean, what we remember is like, the what is it it's almost like what three months in 1968 is that what we remember pretty much is like how long he's running for president i think that period but coupled with those years of president but you know it's really interesting when we talked earlier in the show about yeah he only died at age 43 i know it's how you look at his career he was attorney general for three years he was a senator for three years and he was a candidate for three months right and those six and a quarter years really are what d define his legacy more than anything else that's how people look at it it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary thing. Are there any Bobby Kennedy kind of figures that you might see today? It's hard to be a Bobby Kennedy figure, given that, uh, as you said, uh, from an inciting witness, that he contains multitudes. Yeah. But, you know, I, I look at someone like uh, Pete Buttigieg, and I think he aspires to be a Bobby Kennedy type. I yeah. Think he kind of wants to have that type of kind of rhetoric, concern for the poor, 
technocratic abilities. I think he has that sense of that he wants it. I don't know that he grabs it, but I certainly don't know anybody who's who's got the, the combination of you know the, the hard anti-communist and then the liberal icon. That's a that's a tough one to draw. But I, I think whoever the next Democratic president is, if they're from a younger generation than, than Joe Biden, which I has to be the case, I think they will aspire to and try and capture that Bobby Kennedy. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about this. The, 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 the great amateur historian and host of Hardcore History, Dan Carlin, some, he, he has called the Kennedy brothers, he's, he said they're similar to the Gracchi of the Roman Republic era in that they are people who come from a patrician class but really have a genuine commitment to, you know, helping the populare and are interested in potentially making these kind of more radical changes. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it because I certainly don't think Jack Kennedy was a radical figure in terms of what he did or wanted to do as president. I do think it's important to you know credit him for being on the right side of civil rights, but it took Johnson to kind of get that done. But do you think that Bobby Kennedy, had he been president, would have been transformational in a sense, like an FDR maybe? You know, was there that possibility if he had won the presidency? You know, it's hard to be transformational as president. You have a very limited term. We have a separation sure. of powers. But you would agree FDR that, that FDR was, was right. transformational. Yeah, but he he got to have four terms and an yeah, overwhelming right. majority in yeah. the House and Senate his entire time. And even when the Supreme Court was somewhat less than cooperative in the early years, he kind of, first he tried to expand it, and then he browbeat them until they were more supportive of it. So very few people have that ability to be as transformative in, in a period of time as, as FDR was. But that said, I think Bobby Kennedy was on a pathway to becoming a more liberal person and would have brought those ideas into the presidency in, in 68 if that had happened. And who knows what would have happened, because obviously Richard Nixon wins that election and then wins a huge re-election in 72, but then has the Watergate scandal bring him down. And history would have clearly been different. Do you think Bobby Kennedy could have beaten Nixon? Not only do I think so, but I, I think he might have prevented Wallace from getting in the race. And remember, it was, I think it was something, like, I mean, it was a very, very close race. It was 43, 42, right. 43 to Nixon and 42 to, to, to Humphrey. So, you know, anything could have changed. Maybe just sympathy for John F. Kennedy's assassination. I mean, and, and another thing that Larry Tice suggests, which is interesting, is that having been campaign manager against Nixon in 1960, Bobby knew Nixon's weaknesses better than anybody else. It might have been. Oh, that's a great point. Finally, I've always wondered this. If Bobby Kennedy, I mean, I know we're, we're, we're doing, you know, we're, it's all speculation here, but if Bobby Kennedy had been the nominee in 68, would there have been the riots in Chicago? Would, the, would we have seen in America, at least, you know, the sort of, explosion of radicalism that comes in 68 and kind of, you know, continues into the 70s in the sense that you could see a lot of progressive, like lefty types who are looking at this, who maybe have been in SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, and questioning whether the American capitalist system should be reformed, you know, through traditional politics or should be resisted the way that the Weather Underground and others did. You could sort of see Bobby Kennedy holding the country together. And I mention that because the great New York Post columnist, or I guess Daily News columnist, Pete Hamill, asks Bobby to run for president in 68, in part, because he says, you're the only one I can think of who can hold the country together. So, I mean, do you think if Bobby Kennedy had been the nominee and had been the president, that we really wouldn't have 
the, you know, things that we, we characterize as like Kent State and, you know, the, 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 the tumult that follows 68 for the next, you know, three or four years? Or was that yeah, just inevitable? Do, no, I hate to do this an hour or two of the conversation, but this opens up a huge avenue of discussion that's really worth perhaps another episode. But some of the great moments, and when I mean great, I mean large moments of yeah. kind of radical leftism in this country have happened under Republican administrations. You think the post-68 period after Nixon, yep. where you have the rise of the new left and the Black Panthers, and then you think the political correctness, in, in, insidiousness of the early 90s under late Reagan and, and early George Bush. And then you think of the kind of woke and BLM explosions of the, the 2016 to 2020 period under Donald Trump. And it is possible that some of these expressions of radical leftism emerge under Republican presidents because that is an opportunity for them to kind of reach out and fight against the, the power structures that be. Right. And it's easier to do that and you get a more sympathetic hearing in the media when there's a Republican president. So it's, it's really worth examining that larger question. But I think that suggests that had Kennedy won that race in 68, you might not have had the same expressions of radical leftism. And you know, Bobby Seale is not going to be different than Bobby Seale, who it, it was, and you know, Abby Hoffman is not going to be a different person, but they may not have had the same opportunities to express their views if there had been a Bobby Kennedy well, president. Right. And it's hard to attack a Bobby Kennedy, especially when Bobby Kennedy is moving toward. Now, the other scenario is that Bobby Kennedy becomes president. Like all presidents, he realizes there's only so much I can do. He continues the Vietnam War, even though he's got his reservations about it. You know, he has it. it you know, I love the expression. It's not his fault, but it is his problem. So all of the things, the conditions under which the new left is so agitated they would still exist and maybe the you know the, the the shine would come off of bobby kennedy and he would be sort of seen as just another lyndon johnson because i think if lyndon johnson had run i mean i know we're doing this counterfactual stuff if lyndon johnson had won and he'd been the nominee in 68 we would for sure even though he's a democrat we would still have you know the tumult and the riots in the streets because oh, that's definitely but johnson they hated had johnson. a different right but yeah. johnson had just a different perception yeah. southern democrat anti-civil rights right he just, it was, was the architect of the Vietnam War at that point. So I, I think Bobby Kennedy could have broken away from that paradigm in a way that there was no way Richard Nixon could. Okay. Final thoughts on Bobby Kennedy. Or maybe, do you want to, do you want to like make, make the anti-Bobby Kennedy case that he just gets away with it because he's Kennedy? <laughs> Look, I, I think it's clear from this conversation, Eli, that you're a little more sympathetic to him than I am. I was originally going into it like, I, you know, you, you, you have to like, you know, I, I like to sort of, I have, I, I've obviously read about him and I always sort of thought, oh man, this guy. But then it's like, I came away from him and was like, you know, he was really loved his kids. He loved, he loved children in general. Like there's a lot of really good things about him. Yeah. I think yeah, loved his own kids is kind of weak. Not like, I don't mean it like that, but I mean like he was, a good person. he was, so he, let, let me, he, let me make he loved case. being with his family. He wasn't like one of the, you know, Jack Kennedy, you know, was a, was just a serial adulterer. Bobby Kennedy was not. That, that we know of. We're pretty that sure we he wasn't, but we, right. we don't know. Okay. But look, Bobby Kennedy backs McCarthy, carries out vendettas as attorney general, does wiretapping in the early Like crazy, not just by the way of King. Like, he he really explodes it, especially against the mafia, even though one might say it's fine, I don't care about the mafia, but still, he's a- The mafia and King and Martin Luther King's own staff. That's right. right. He has these- horrible enmities with people like 
Cohn and Hoover and Johnson and Hoffa. And, you know, you may not like those people, but I mean, he really carries out these grudges and has these very nasty rivalries with them. So he's a very tough, heart-charging person. And then even in the late 60s, I mean, you say he, he's sympathetic to the plight of the poor and he backs the war on poverty, but it's not clear that those were the right policies for the country. And now they were most definitely not the right policies. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'll be starker about it. They, they were not the right policies. Right. We're now $30 trillion in debt in large part because a lot of the transfer payments. The poverty problem of poverty has not gone away. And I think we're saddled with these legacy programs from Johnson that, that are hugely problematic. So, and Bobby Kennedy supported all that. So I'm not necessarily one who's going to go out here and embrace Bobby Kennedy. I think he had some talent as a campaign manager. I think in the late 60s, he showed some talent as a campaigner. And obviously had some terrible tragedies happen both to his family and, and to him. But uh, this is not the uh, Tevi Troy loves Bob that became the Howard by any means. Well, Tevi Troy, thank you so much. This was really good. I think I agree with that. I think that we have to, you know, and that's why he's a, I think you would agree, perhaps, that he's a fascinating figure. Oh, absolutely. We're worthy of even more hours of discussion. Yeah, I, okay. So, I mean, we Great agree on that. Like. And- this is worth looking into. And also the, the most fascinating thing among the many, many fascinating things is how he goes and undergoes this transformation from McCarthy person who's anti-communist and carrying out these vendettas to liberal icon. And it's inexplicable. You asked if there was anybody else in American politics who did it. And you know, I guess I would have to say no, because nobody was really able to make that transformation. And as I said, it was part of external events and internal changes within him that helped make it happen. But still, it, it is unique and worthy. What about, well, I mean, you could argue maybe in the other direction, you have a Reagan who is an FDR man for all these progressive reasons, is definitely like, you know, part of the Hollywood elite. And then, you know, he starts reading that William F. Buckley guy, starts hanging around well, I mean, you have Barry people Goldwater. Who make, you make an idea a lot. I mean, what? Yeah. People make ideological transformations all the time, right? The whole neoconservative movement is about ideological course, yeah. transformation. But this is a combination of personal, that's right, reputational and ideological transformation. And to combine those three, I think it's a very difficult thing to do. Right. That's right. And I think I would credit him for just shining a spotlight on that kind of extreme poverty that still existed in the 1960s, even if I think think he had the right solution for it. So there's something to be said. There's a kind of political carriage in that that these were not necessarily his constituencies. There wasn't like a political reason to go to Appalachia, per se. There was a humanitarian reason. And I think that that's something to be admired in Bobby Kennedy, even though I think, you know, I could argue he would not be a great president. Yeah, and I think think that in some ways is the the Joe Kennedy legacy, which is I've made enough money that you guys don't have to support yourself. I want you to go out and do good in the world. Yeah, that's that's what I definitely want to look at. Well, Tevi, we will have you back. Maybe we'll do another part two on this, on Bobby Kennedy, but we'll definitely bring you back. And so thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. Love the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.